I'm Michael Ewald, host of Credit Hour. Today we interview John Quickdusi and her son, Neil Ambrose Smith, two of the most acclaimed Native American artists living today. They were on campus earlier this year as instructors at the Oscar Howe Summer Art Institute. A phenomenal conversation, we discuss their journeys to becoming artists and the creative process. John, Neil, how's it going today? Good. Good. You are here at the Oscar Howe Summer Art Institute. I'm curious, what do you think of South Dakota? We've seen the university and we're impressed with a lot of the things that we're seeing here at the university, especially with this institute. It's so well organized. I mean, and there's so much help there. You know, Keith is there, Braveheart, and we have Inkpa, we have Liz Skye, and of course, Corey is around. And then we have John Timothy, who's a printmaking professor. Uh, they are all there, ready to help, you know, and watching what's going on. So it's a very intense thing that we're doing because we're presenting uh, perhaps three uh, different types of printmaking in a day, and we're moving through the week that way. So we're pushing the kids really hard, but they're little troopers. They're just coming through like they were made for this. And they're high school kids. That's the amazing thing. You know, you caught me when, when you came into our office. I was listening to a, a prior interview that you all had done with um, public broadcasting, I think in Montana several years ago. And you talked about the idea that artists, they can't work alone. You can't um, just kind of, you know, hold yourself off. You know, you, you have to engage with other artists. Why are institutions like this important? Why is collaborating with other artists important? It's networking and sharing knowledge. That's the only way we can learn. And I feel... It's our responsibility as an artist, and if, if we're allowed to travel and share information, that we need to do as much as possible and share as much as possible, because a lot of institutions don't have the resources or the funding for professional development for their staff and faculty to send them out. So they're not they're not connecting with the rest of the world. So we're we try to bring the world to them. I also think you know uh, the two of us coming here, even though we're coming here to bring new technology, which is what we're doing in printmaking. So uh, one reason why the professors here have been watching us closely is because we're showing things they haven't seen before. But at the same time, when we do this, we are rewarded in return because the students often will do something that we don't expect with the materials, and they show us something new, and out of that will come something that we'll carry forward and teach someplace else. So, like Neil says, the networking is crucial to knowledge. You know, and I, I, I think it's also the mentorship, right? It, it's kind of you know, for kids being able to look up to people and see, you know, professional artists. And I kind of want to, you know, not to get ahead of ourselves, but I want to, I want to broach this topic. I mean, when did you all consider yourself professional artists? Is that, did you ever do that? Is it, is it ever been that sense? Was there a moment where you're like, I'm an artist or have you maybe always been one? I, uh, one day I slipped on the toilet lid (laughs) and I hit my head and I discovered the flux capacitor. (laughs) I think way back, I, I thought that this was going to be my route, but I thought I was going to always be an art teacher because in 1958 um, at junior college, we had a class that was composed mostly of military guys, 
on the GI Bill from the Korean War. So I think I, I was the only woman at that time in the class. Later, there was a housewife who came, but my intention you know, was to be a professional. And at the end of the year, he called me into his office and he said, you can draw better than the men, but you can't be an artist. Women cannot be artists. And that you know, kind of took the wind out of my sails. And he said, but you could be uh, an art teacher. So it took me a while to gather myself together. I was economically in tough straits at the time, and I had two little kids to, to support. So it took me a while, but I would take one class at a time. It took me 20 years, actually, to get a master's degree. But by the time I got a master's degree, I had a gallery in New York. I just moved forward with that, not knowing where it was going. Now we received a grant from the Joan Mitchell Foundation to archive all of my estate. It's now becoming clear to me that, yes, I have been a professional. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's that's kind of what I was getting at, maybe, was, was you know, listen in a previous interview, you kind of tell this story about, you know, that the women aren't artists. And I wonder, you know, how much of that sort of sexism did you encounter, you know, on your path to being an artist? Was that something that, that was consistent? It was consistent. Yeah. Oh, my God. When when I first started showing in Santa Fe, that the, all the Native women were showing in the trading posts and none were showing in the galleries. And um, I remember putting my work in the back of a pickup truck with a couple of other Indians, and we went to Santa Fe. We pulled into a gas station because we saw a gallery upstairs in this little building. We went upstairs in all naivete and said to the man, a gallery owner, um, you know, we we have our artwork in the truck. Would you come and look at it? So he came downstairs, and we flipped through the artwork in the truck, and he pointed to mine and said, would you please come upstairs? I want to talk to you. That was, you know, the op- opening a door for me, and I eventually did a show there. You know, people that I didn't know very well, like Susan Rothenberg, Joe Brainerd, Roy DeForest, people like that from New York were the artists that he was handling in the gallery. So that put me into a different spot from the trading post. And eventually what I did was I tried to bring other Indian women with me. But I can remember doing an opening and having all the Indian men go to the other end of the room to stay away from me and leave me by myself. I mean, that was just common in those days. And, of course, they're friends now, but but not in those days. I mean, there were, women just were not accepted. And the professors at school were all men. We didn't have any role models. We didn't have any women. If any women were there, they came temporarily for a semester. Of course, we all, all the women crowded around to take a class with them. And sometimes you couldn't even get a class with them. So it was a different time. You know, what was it like you know, growing up, I read online that you were born in Montana. Is that correct? Yep, absolutely, at the mission. And so what was it like growing up in Montana? I didn't grow up there. I lived there for a while. My dad was a horse trader, so we were traveling to trade horses. So we were living on other reservations. We lived at Nisqually. Uh, we lived at Muckleshoot in Washington State. We moved around all the time. And, you know, this was right after the Second World War, so Indian people were just in dire poverty. It was so bad that food wasn't even available all the time. 
and I can remember that my sister and I would dig through the garbage piles behind the Indian cabins where three families lived in a one-room cabin. We don't think of America that way, but, you know, I have firsthand knowledge of it. It was a different, really a different time. Coming from that place to where I am now, going to universities, doing lectures, traveling to Europe, and doing the stuff that I'm doing, and having the career that I have, uh, a review in New York Times a couple of weeks ago, and that sort of thing was never anything that I could ever even dream about. It just wasn't there. In fact, I met a schoolmate who I was friends with in the sixth grade just a few years ago, and she said, I thought you'd be living in a trailer with eight kids. I mean, which wasn't a nice thing to say, but she was just stunned at what I'm doing. So I've come a long journey. You know, do you feel that art was a way to cope with that? Or, or what were what are your first memories maybe of making art as a, as a child? My first memories were just digging in with a stick in the dirt and arranging rocks, you know, that sort of thing, because that's what I had available. The second really sharp memory is first grade when I went for, we didn't have kindergarten, and I lived way out in a rural area smelling library paste. It was like some kind of an elixir for me. Uh, eating it wasn't bad. And all Indian children usually smell something and then they taste it. That's just a common thing. And um, crayons were c- kind of crumbly. They smelled great, but they're not really good to eat. But that became my fixation. My, if you finished your schoolwork, you were allowed to paint with tempera paint. And I knew I was in the zone. This was where I was supposed to be in life. I think that that that's carried me. I mean, it's still the same thing. Put me around some art supplies or in this room with the kids making art. And, you know, I'm in heaven. You know, did you enjoy, was that a, a part of being a mother that you really enjoyed was sharing, you know, kind of your artistic talents with um, Neil? I mean, how, how when did Neil kind of come into the picture as an artist? He was just... Tiny. I mean, he was just a baby. You can tell right away when your children are born, kind of if they have the gift, I say it that way, because that's what it is. You're born, you're born gay, you're born straight, you're born or maybe bi, you're born with the gift, that, which is art. Children who are creative have a different path. I have two grandchildren that I'm raising right now. One is born with the gift, she has it, The other one is a little scientist. So Neil has the gift. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Well, I'm curious, Neil. I mean, what was it like, you know, growing up with artistic, you know, mom? I mean, was that, did you get more time to kind of color outside the lines? I mean, what was was that like? Did that influence, you think, your early childhood? I, I think, I thought I had a normal childhood. You know, I thought it was normal to have all these artists in the house all the time and have to go to shows. I thought it was normal that there was dishes in the sink and that I had to cook for myself. I I thought these things were normal and that everybody had art supplies. The difference would be is when I started going to friends' houses and they had toys, action figures and electronic stuff, and the dishes were clean. That's where I started to, like, put things together like there's something different, you know? There's something going on here. Like, our house isn't like that. How come come they don't cook? How come these kids don't know how to cook for themselves? You know, that kind of thing. I guess the second thing I would say is it, it's hard to realize what passion is and understand the meaning of the word. And when we look back, we can, we can recognize it in uh, the flavors of school paste and Crayola uh, crayons and the texture and the feeling of, you know, dragging a, a crayon across the paper or getting a brand new box of crayons and opening up and seeing all those colors. 
and wondering if you should even use it because it's so precious, you know. And then later on, as you follow this passion, because we know that we can't break away from passions without uh, sure death, that it becomes a career. And, and then you realize that you don't really have a job, it's a career. So I think it's that that process through life and nobody really talks about it or tells us this is what happens, you know. We know that our parents generally are maybe successful at something as professionals and they in turn pass that on to their kids, you know, the family business or whatever. You can be a painter or go into music or dance or theater or science, but you really need to put bread on the table. You need to be a lawyer, that sort of thing. And it was the same in my family in that regard. Like I could go into science or law or music, but if I was going to put bread on the table, I needed to be a painter. Well, and that's what I was going to ask was that when when you sort of had maybe your rebellious, you know, state as a youth, did you, did you like threaten to become an accountant? What was what was that kind of like? I, oh, I I threatened with um, theater. I threatened with music. I I threatened with travel. Like uh, one year for Christmas, I left and I went to Mexico for a month. I just took like 500 bucks and I split and I just, I went with a girlfriend and we slept on beaches and traveled all over Mexico. And, um, and so I, like, I, I was like boycotting Christmas, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> and so I, I did, I did those things. But, um, when I went to college, uh, my mom was like, I'll pay for your tuition cause I'm selling my paintings right now. So I'll pay for school, but you gotta go to art school, you know? And so I didn't rebel like some kids like they just split or something like that I said okay you know because I didn't really have anything on my plate and I wasn't that bad of a kid I mean I probably did bad things you know I went to art school and I did really well it was it was a really amazing time and then I just had to do a lot of research you know I spent almost a decade just studying and not so much painting but I did a lot of other things that feed my practice today as a, as a as a career artist like I worked for a goldsmith for a few years and I studied uh, you know that whole practice um, I did titanium mountain bike design and building uh, learned how to work metals and worked for art shipping companies I did all these weird strange things I even worked at a, a packing plant for tobacco in North Carolina for a stint I think it was four hours. <laughs> you know, I, I'm curious. We just kind of talked about this idea of, of identity, you know, as you kind of identify with an artist. You know, and this is maybe what I was trying to get at with kind of that first question about the professional artist, right? Was there this moment where you were like, this is just who I am and I have to be an artist? And, and I'm curious for you as well, John, like, you know, you, you talked about, you know, growing up, you know, in, in, surrounded by poverty, surrounded by, you know, violence at times. Was there this this moment where you said, like, I just know I'm not going to be happy unless I pursue, you know, my passion? Is there this other life out there where maybe you would have, you know, become a lawyer, you know, just worked a, a, a regular job? Or just was it just not an option? I mean, I, I'm curious if you can dig into that. Well, you know, after that professor told me that women couldn't be artists and I should be a teacher, I went to the University of Washington um, taking one class at a time when when my kids were very, were just babies, tried to be a, maybe a social worker or something. You know, that wasn't... That just wasn't the answer. So instead of doing my classwork, you know, I'd be making a pincushion out of a tuna can and writing a poem to go with with it or, 
you know, I'd be doing stuff like that. And like Neil says, instead of doing the dishes, I'd be at the table painting a still life. So I tell students, um, we, we have to work to support our habit. This is our habit. This is my drug of choice. I don't smoke, I don't drink. Art is my drug of choice. And I tell my students, that is a good motto. And if you do that, you're not, you know, painting usually not in the middle of the night, although I have friends who prefer that. But, you know, you're kind of eight to five. You're kind of a working Joe. You kind of, you have to go to the studio. Even if you don't have a creative idea, you go in and you clean the floor, wash brushes, or you do something, just something to be there. And then you'll be traveling or, like Neil says, getting out and doing our research, which is what this is. Coming here uh, is like research for us because things we hear in conversation, all that uh, contributes to our art and helps us in the studio. So yesterday, Liz Guy, who's a very young woman, here gave a lecture to the students and she said to them you need to travel you need to get out Uh, that's how you grow well those could have been my words to the students because that's what I always say that's what Neil is saying here doing his research is that we can't just stay you know locked up in, in a in a studio and expect you know inspiration to come because it doesn't nothing happens in a vacuum no so we as artists usually have 10 jobs at a time. We're illustrating a book. We're doing, getting ready to do a lecture at a conference. We are working on a mural. We might be working in an airport or on a public art job. Uh, we're getting ready for two shows. I mean, this, this in reality is my life, right, right this moment. Right. I'm telling you things that I have to do. And I've done more writing. That's not my strong suit, and students now are trained to do that, to express themselves and to write. We weren't trained that way. We were just trained just to be right brain and, you know, do our painting. But now, now, you have to know technology. You you have to know uh, how to use a computer. Uh, you have to know how to write. <clears throat> I, would, me. I would say looking back on, if we look back on relationships, that's probably the first realization that you have a career and not a job because you're not clocking in and clocking out. It's 24-7. And a career is the most difficult thing to have with a relationship, you know, because people that don't have a career, they're having a relationship with somebody that has a career realize that they're not as important because your career is the most important thing because it's your passion Mm -hmm. because you're driven to do this and Mm -hmm. you're there's nothing else that you want to do that's more important and so going on a vacation is um difficult because it takes you away from where you want to be and so you have to Sometimes you make concessions in relationships to make a relationship work because we have families. So you, you, there's sacrifices to, to get it to work. But the, the people that marry in or that are dating or hanging out with somebody that has a career, they know the score and, and they're willing to make that sacrifice too. Or not. Or Well, then they're not there. They leave yeah. because they can't stick around. But there's a lot of artists out there that don't have relationships or studies or they have a really hard time having somebody around because um, nobody nobody wants to feel left out, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. 
yeah, yeah. and neglected. That that's true for writers or actors or anybody anybody in the arts with a career with a career. Yeah, because if 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 this is your life's passion, you know, it's it's not so easy to say, okay, well, we're going to go on vacation this week, and when I come back next week, I'll work on that show. You may be ready to go into the studio and work on that show right now, and you just can't do that. I remember reading the book by um, Moose, Philip Guston's daughter. Guston. Oh, Musa. Yeah, and uh, she writes in the book called The Night Studio. She writes about her dad, and she would... Uh, write about the fact that uh, Thanksgiving would come and they were going to prepare a big dinner and he was supposed to help cook and he would see the people coming down the driveway and he'd run into a studio and not come out and it's because it was taking him away from his passion and it was interfering and only if a poet came to visit him could he stop what he was doing and become engaged with that because what we want to do is talk about art and Indian politics all the time so like being here is is like uh, th- this is like you know when I was young I would go on a big drunk and just get like really wasted and it was so fun and you get rid of all your anxieties and get everything off your chest and be bad and you know I can't do that uh, you know, I quit doing that 40 years ago. It was too hard on my body and everything. And so, you know, I substituted art to, to take the place of that. But this, when I come here, when I can sit at a table with, uh, you know, this whole group of Native Americans like we did last night, and we're all talking about our stories from our grandmothers and, you know, and stories from our families and exchanging all this and what we think about, you know, education today. You know, this is what happens to me when I go home to the reservation. You know, I would stay up till 3 o'clock in the morning with my cousin who founded the tribal college, and we would just get so deep into the politics of Native life today and art. I mean, my two huge passions in life, they're tied together. You know, and both of us love printmaking, and we love doing these workshops. We love seeing the students. And, you know, sometimes we do these workshops with say like veterans or uh, homeless people or people who are especially enabled people and when we do that we are giving people a gift they give us a gift in return by being there and doing the work but you know this is another passion so we come out and we do this we get so engaged with you know, it's it's healthy. This was really interesting to me. This this kind of concept, right, of of the muse, right, of when of when it just finds you. This this yeah. kind of spirit inside of you that you feel almost a need, a, a, a compulsion to express. You know, when you said that, that sometimes this kind of differentiation between the career and the job. I mean, are there times where you have to force yourself to like, man, I've not. You know, I do have a deadline. Yes. I'm not feeling it. Yes. And I gotta just like I gotta somehow conjure the muse however I need to do it is it you know when you said you know sometimes you just have to go in and and start sweeping the studio I mean is it just kind of the simple things you have to put yourself around it and and you kind of start to develop some momentum or or how does that process work well I I clean to uh, it's one of my ideas actually in my app Uh, cleaning is uh, a moment where you know you don't want to clean 
but the painting's not working, and there's nothing else that you can, you're, you're a fanatic about it. You can't change your mind, you can't change the subject. You've gotta solve this painting, so clean. You go in the studio and you sweep, and while you're sweeping, you're, you're an automaton, and you're, and you're doing this process, because it, it's, it's giving you an interrupt or a change up in your, your pattern, your habit. And sometimes we get in, locked in this cycle, and we keep hitting the same answer, which is the wrong answer. You know, it's like wrong, 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 you know, and, and, and so you need to do something else, and you might find the answer in there. So cleaning is a really, that's what I do. Well, <clears throat> well, there is a, I go through a little ritual, but one thing that comes to mind is that years ago I heard Neil Diamond in an interview, um, someone asked him, what do you do when you go to compose? You know, how do you, you know. What do you listen to? Yeah, what do you listen to? And uh, Neil Diamond said that he used to listen to the Beatles, Buddy Holly. And he said, but now I listen to myself. I get out my old tapes and I listen to my old tapes, which is exactly what I do. So I will like riff through art history. I'll, you know, go on the web. I'll think of a certain artist. Right. I have a I have a big library. I mean, an extensive library of books that I've collected over the years. And so I'll go through like certain parts of art history. I'll go to the 1930s, or you know, I'll go to cave painting, or you know, and I'll just amuse myself with this for a while. And then something will hit, and I'll say, Hey, I could do something with that. But then. I do wash dishes, uh, regardless of what my son says, and I'll be washing dishes and, you know, uh, something will come to me. Or at three o'clock in the morning in my work sleep state, which is really important to me, that, that dream state, something will click in there and I'll say, why didn't I think of that before? And so it may not come just exactly like through the books or like Neil Diamond listening to himself. It may come just riding down the road seeing a billboard or and all of a sudden something clicks mm-hmm. and man I I need to I need to get this down on paper I need to get mm-hmm. it written down just even pencil the idea down get to the studio like it's there and then it starts plaguing me so I did that with these big canoes and I kept bugging my son because now there are things I can't do that he helps me with. He's been helping me since he was in high school, actually. I'll come over and wash the dishes. I have... No, no. You see, <laughs> what, what, what he does is I can't... I want to put these axes up on top of this painting called the Spotted Owl. And, of course, there's no owl. It's just empty trees. How do I put these axes up there without them falling on people? And, you know, he's done these things for me for years and years and years and years. I've done these attachments and helped me with stuff in the studio. And, you know, kind of gotten me caught up to date on technology. Like, he gave me a projector the other day. You know, I don't down. need the better one. He, I follow in his footsteps now. <laughs> so he does that stuff. And I kept saying to him, you know, I, I want to make these big canoes. Like, I want to build them. Three-dimensional. I've been painting them. But now I want to put them in the middle of the floor. And I got these ideas about what I want to put in those canoes. I want to... I want to fill that canoe, that trade canoe, with fry bread. And he said, Ma, you know, your, your paintings are good. You, you don't need to do that right now. You just have to get this show done. No, I think I need to do that. So all the way through Christmas, and he was so busy with his kids, and, you know, I had my two granddaughters, but I kept like, I got to do this. This is really important. And finally, he just went in the studio. He started cutting up wood. And he built a canoe, 
And then he called me, and he said, "Okay, Ma, I made you a canoe. It's so gorgeous. It's so beautiful. I mean, I didn't even get to design it. He designed it. And so we put that in the show. We filled it full of fry bread. We got one of his students to make us 40, 40 pieces of fry bread or something. And oh, from IAIA. Yeah. 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 I mean, you it, know, nothing comes from nothing. Yeah. And so when we when we're looking for something for inspiration, it's really we're looking for something to steal. Yeah. And so and music right. and, and painting are synonymous yeah. in that oh, yeah. where you can listen to any piece of music and you can hear music history. Yeah. You can pick out a phrase, a yeah. riff or something and yeah. somebody else did that. Oh, that's Carlos Santana. Yeah. Oh, that's a buddy guy sound or something. Yeah. yeah. And it's the same in painting. When you look at oh, that's David Sally. Yeah. Oh, that's a Philip Guston. Oh, that yeah. that's a Shapiro or whatever. You, yeah. There's there's always a connection and right. Uh, and that's important as an artist. We need to see the connection to history in our work. Because if it's not there, if if you don't see other artists in your work, you feel like you're doing something wrong. Because that's where our inspiration comes from when we see amazing work. You know, every time we go to New York, we go to, to MoMA and the Met, and we go visit our old friends. So we oh, go yeah. see the Gustins and the Warhols and everything. Yeah. And um, and sit there and ooh and ah over like the brushstrokes and the colors and and the imagery and the power yeah. and the passion. And yeah. and I want to do that. I wish I could do that. And that's yeah. that's what feeds our careers and that's what feeds our passion. And yeah. and it's it's no different in music. You know, the Beatles played uh, American music for years, for a decade. They were just, you know, a cover band. And then they started writing their own music. And now, you know, the Beatles is synonymous with a household name and, and groundbreaking music, you know. But that's rooted in music history. You know, uh, two other things that I want to talk about, and, and these are kind of some of the reoccurring themes, I think, when I read about how others have maybe described your art is how you kind of bring in the politics of it and also maybe the humor sometimes. Um, there's one painting in particular. Smithsonian does a cool video on a piece of work that I, I think you've done, and it's I think it was maybe No States. It was a, a painting kind of almost had um, like a, a repurposed map, I guess, and you sort of eliminated the, the European uh, names. And just it's called state names. All I left on the map, I erased all European names, and I left only Indian names. And, of course, about half of the states have Native American names. We don't learn that in school. We don't know that. This always sends me off on a research project when I do this, and I do a lot of research for every single painting. But I want them to tell a story, an important story, about history in this country. And I was just saying yesterday to... So maybe in another interview we did. You know, when, when I went through public school, we learned about the Manifest Destiny and that there were Native Americans, and then they weren't here anymore. And they talk about Native Americans in the past. And, of course, we always get riled up over that, that they only talk about us uh, using past tense. I think Craig Howe, who runs that institute over here in Rapid City, he's he's talking about that, too. But that's what we saw in books. So we have to... As Native people, we have to talk to each other, and then we have to share information, whatever 
that is. And we do it verbally and orally uh, when we get together over dinner and stuff and we share, swap all this stuff. And as teachers and professors, and, you know, he's got all Native students at his school, and we like coming out and working with the Native students here. So when I tell those stories, I'm actually talking about real history. I'm making a point that here half of the states have Native names. Some of those states, there are not uh, allotted lands uh, by uh, the federal government. And there's 561 tribes that are recognized and hundreds more that are looking to be recognized. And when I go out to speak to an audience and I'll have a big auditorium filled like this and somebody will raise their hand and say, uh, are there five tribes in this country? <laughs> or, you know, they'll ask me some question like that. Are there others which, like you? Yeah, which tells me that, oh my God, you know, we don't learn this in school. This information needs to get out. So if I put it in a place where you don't expect it, which is in a museum, somebody comes to the museum, they may not understand that's very confusing to them that I've erased all European presence. But of course, it's my humor. You know, I'm, I'm enjoying having fun with that while I'm telling you something that's real. Humor is, a, is the most amazing delivery tool, and er, most cultures use it. There's, there's very few cultures that don't use it. And so, like, within the tribe, it's, it's a way of healing. It's a way of moving on and getting through something without poisoning yourself is to laugh about it, laugh about the pitfalls and in, in the, tri- the troubles of it's, life. It's about survival. It's a sign, I mean, Seinfeld I, episode, I have, you know, I have every day. four parts to survival, and one is our wisdom knowledge, and one is not book learning. Knowledge is what you get in college. Wisdom is what the elders have. Tons of it. They're walking encyclopedias. And one is humor and community. That's so important. We we can't we can't live without it. It's as much of a passion as our art. It's medicine. Humor is medicine. But it's a great way to uh, have a conversation instead of uh, pointing the finger at somebody and yelling at them and telling them that, that they're wrong. It's better to bring them in and work together through it. Mm-hmm. And if you can laugh about it together, yeah. Yeah. Y- you go a lot further. And and if we can tell a good story, my stuff is in textbooks for the past 20 years all over this country. Music books, uh, history books, literature. I mean, I get requests all the time to use my art in in books for uh, schools, which is another little niche that I have. But then that's that, largely because it's narrative. Yeah. It's, it's not just wall frosting. No. You know. It, 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 you can't just overlook it. It, it. There's always something in there that will draw you in that's engaging, and yeah. there's something for everybody, you know? Yeah. You know, we've, we've talked a lot about sort of the printmaking, um, some of the, the maybe physical um, art that, that you all have made. My brother lives in Denver. I travel to the Denver International Airport frequently. That was maybe the coolest part about sort of doing some of the background research for this interview was, I mean, I've found myself in that airport and just the way the lines on the floor kind of just urge you along, right? And, and to realize that, like, that there was an intention to that, that there was real artist sort of thought process behind that. Uh, can you tell us about uh, what went into designing sort of the, the, the floor of the Denver International um, art, why public art like this matters, maybe? It's community building. Well, it's community building. Yeah. But the original thing was that the airport was going down on an Arapaho encampment ground. Okay. And so they wanted a native there. I mean, often I get chosen to represent the whole Native community. I mean, 
all well, tribes, you, you all everything. look alike, right? Yeah, because we all look alike. Okay. Anyway, anyway, that's why they called me. That's the original reason they called me. But if you give me a job to do like that, it's I'm not going to just do a one-off. It's not. It's going to be more involved in that. So I did a lot of research for that project. And one, I wanted to follow the traffic patterns of when people entered the Great Hall and when they left the Great Hall and in making the step design. And then around Doug Hollis's fountain that was in the middle of the floor, which eventually leaked and they took out, and he was our big star artist, they actually covered it over and asked me and Neil to fill it in, which is certain interesting, you know, the baseball, you know, that kind of thing. So in those days, Neil had just learned how to use McDraw. That's all we had on the computer. And he did that following the vector. McDraw is a vector program. Okay. So. So and that's what they, the uh, engineers wanted for the screeds yeah. uh, in the terrazzo. And, and because she wanted to put in all of these pictographs. And not just pictographs that go oh. back 12,000 years. No. But, yeah. but current pictographs of today. So it was a yeah. mix. I, I made a Mobius strip, and it told the history of Colorado. Yeah. So I started with the dinosaurs, and then I went to Native people, and then had animals and fish and everything, high-tech. And I brought high-tech back to the Native people. So I made a Mobius strip, and I brought it back to that. People probably don't see that. They probably didn't know. I would see kids following the pictographs in the floor and everything. Yeah. But I mean, it was a lot of work for Neil to do that. But now, here, here's the interesting part, is that here we are 20 years later, and they're tearing it all out. Really? Because they're going to redo the whole inside of the airport. And yeah. it's all worn out. It's 20 years later. Now, this next week, we go home. We rest up for a couple of days, and we head off to Colorado. He's got a show in a gallery downtown Colorado. I have a show out at Loveland. And the woman who's the art consultant at the airport has invited us to have, she's going to throw a, a, a big reception for us <laughs> downtown and yeah. have us meet with all the airport people because we may be invited back to design something else in the airport. Yet again. And I've yeah. got an idea for it already. I'm all excited about this. Yeah. I don't know how to do it, so I have to get my son to figure it yeah. out for me and uh, so we can do this. I want a big, huge screen, a video screen, and I want to teach people hello, goodbye in all these foreign languages, so Urdu and Farsi and Norwegian and Salish and have a hand waving on the screen, and that's all you're going to see with clouds floating in the background. It's either hello or goodbye. You don't know, but it's hello up here and goodbye down here. And I'm thinking, ah, in the airport, that's the perfect place for that. <laughs> so my son listens to me, and, and he goes, I don't know, Ma, I don't know how, yeah, you know what I'm thinking? We're going to go down to the, the Hindu place downtown, and we'll get photograph one of somebody there just the hand but bracelets and fingernails and all these things and a cowboy with his hat and you know in the picture so each foreign language is going to have you know also just something you'll see that's a little different 
you know, I might know the answer to this question because you lit up about the, you know, with the thought of just making something new. Is there a mixed emotion when you hear, you know, oh, they, they might you know, tear this this piece of art down? It, you know, obviously some of that stuff is inevitable, right? But how does, how do, as an artist, I mean, this is, you know, some of this art is, is you must have, uh, I don't know, emotional connection to it, right? How does it feel when, when, you know, they, when you hear that? You know, Native people believe everything is a process. Everything has a life. So part of the problem with the government hoarding our stuff in the museums and thinking they're going to keep it forever and ever, they can't. It's not going to do that. And so part of the resistance to the government doing that is that we need to have it so we can use it, so we can sing the songs and do the dances that go with it, so we can wear the dress or whatever. I remember an anthropologist who really startled me when um, I found this old dress in a secondhand shop that I thought, hmm, looked familiar, but the beads weren't right on it, and I paid for it on time, and I finally took it home in my suitcase, and I went to a museum in Spokane called Monac that's no longer there, and the curator said, come downstairs with me, and then he showed me these tops to these dresses that were just like mine, and they were Salish. I said, this dress spoke to me in the secondhand shop, and here it was, you know, a thousand miles away from where it should be, and he said, you don't want to take it home and have them put it in a box. He said, you want to dance the dress to keep it alive. I made a piece of art out of that. Dance the dress to keep it alive. Everything has a life and a half-life. So when they tore out the fountain, they had Neil and me come and make a new floor in the middle of the old floor. And we did. Oh, we just, we made this incredible design. Of course, Neil did the computer work. And I sat there and said, move this here, put this over here. And then he said, no, Ma, I'm going to put this here. And then we made this, oh, this three-dimensional bang-up design. And they said, well, they're going to tear the floor out in two years. That's too expensive and complicated. And so they made us dumb it down. They gave us a choice of two colors. So we did it. And then... They did a rave on the floor. Like a month after the floor was installed, <laughs> a, they, a rave came. A flash mob. A flash mob, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, they're right. Yeah. A flash yeah. mob came and danced so on our floor. The floor is going to die. It's going to die. But there's yeah. video of it yeah. on YouTube, so that'll with, still be alive. With the flash mob. Yeah. It's going to be there. Yeah. 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 So it's sad. It's going to take a new life. Because your art, they're your children. Yeah. You you raise them, you you talk with them, you have conversation through the process in your studio. And then when they leave the studio, you have no control over their life anymore. No. You know, you can't tell them what to do. You can't tell them how to act. No. To behave. And they go have their own experience. If they survive... And they're out there doing their own thing. Then they have your own, their own stories and their own history, you know, their provenance. And so you can go and maybe visit them or run into them at some point and catch up. Or they don't make it. Like, the floor is not going to make it. You know, it's, it's going it's to get churned up and hopefully recycled and become something else, yep. which is good, you know. But that's, that's Indian ideology. Yeah. So I think we're okay with it in, in that sense. Yeah, yeah. we're we're sad that they're yep. redoing the airport, but we're excited about the idea and the promise of new, of renewal, of coming back again, and being able to 
be just a part of do it. Do something. Yeah. yeah. You know, it makes me laugh. Again, it brings me back this conversation that we just had to a previous interview that I was listening to um, with you two on it. And it was, and I can't even describe like the camp, but you were talking about a, a teaching workshop that you had done. And I think it must have been with computer design because you basically, you know, kind of looked at your mom and said, oh, this wasn't for you. You know, I didn't want to do this. And you, you kind of had this like really jokingly, this joking moment. What struck me though is you, you had this, you had this phrase where you said, you know, I don't want you to learn this. I just want you to make your art, you know, like this, what a, what a son might tell her mother, you know, like, like this is personal to me. I want you to do, you know, and I don't know, maybe if if you don't remember this, I I could be going. It's probably a technology thing. Yeah. I I could be veering off in left field here, but I just, I guess the point I'm trying to make is, is when you kind of look at your mother's career and, you know, it's, you know, obviously you still are collaborating together. Is there a moment where you just kind of want to appreciate, you want to take a step back and go like, I, I really liked your art from this era. Could you make one more piece on this? Or or what sort of influence maybe do you have on, on your mother's art at this point in your life? Oh, a lot, a lot. But I don't really tell her, I really like this. You should make more of these. Mm. But she does that because she's the mother, you know. Right. She'll she'll do that. She'll be like, you know, I really like those paintings you did last time. <laughs> you know, those those were really good. <laughs> and you should make some more of those because because I really like those. You know, that kind of thing. And that's fine. You know, and that's a parental thing. We have this uh, symbiotic relationship. It's reciprocal. You know, it's like Tai Chi or something. You know, where things you know move together like this. And sometimes I'm the parent and she's the child, and sometimes she's the parent and I'm the child. It just depends on what it is. And so I'll, I'll, I make allowances for, for those things, and she makes allowances for other things. So there, it, it is symbiotic in that, and, and we're, it's groovy. And I think part of the understanding, too, and it goes beyond just a level of respect, it's that living in harmony is, is so much more effective and vital that there's no reason to fight it. You know, you might as well just go with it because you never know what's going to happen. What I'll do is I'll critique her work. I'll come in and I'll look at stuff and I'll, because I've studied her work enough that, uh, you know, I'm, I can have a voice in that. And she'll take that and apply it or, or use it or, or adapt it. And then she'll critique my work as well. But I, I never, I've never said you should make, you should do this or something. But, but dealers will do that and historians will do that and collectors will do that Uh, they're always about you know I really like those other things that you did you should do more of these you know because I could really sell those or or could you do that same painting in orange instead of red (laughs) yeah yeah because it's got to match my sofa yeah yeah they do stuff like that but I think because we've gone to museums we travel a lot together and we we go to museums a lot and because we look at art we are both painters. We love paint. We love the process of painting. We're mark makers. We're mark makers, mm-hmm. and we're drawers. And so we often go to the same artists. We veer off, and we'll choose different artists. But like when we were in New York this last time, there was an artist down in Chinatown that I wanted to go see his show. And so it was laborious to get down there. It was hard. We were tired, but we we went down there, and both of us were just like so blown away by this show and just like okay we can leave now we can go home happy because we finally got you know our our fix need yeah. our fix our art fix yeah 
with this show. It was just just so rich in paint and imagery. We'll do that often. We'll just go to a show like that. We'll just both be in awe. And um, we're both learning all the yeah. time. Oh yeah. And I think we learned sort of at the same time because she's late career. And when I was a child, I remember she would be in the garage, the wood stove, and that leaked, and so there would be this like layer of smoke in there. And she'd have paper pinned up on the wall, and she was drawing. And she had these show after show. She was selling these uh, pastels like crazy, but she was also like teaching herself composition and, and drawing. And I would watch her drag the uh, the charcoal up on the paper and make lines and things. And I would hear the sound and I would watch the stroke and how it was made. Those are things that stuck with me, you know, that I still try to do today. And I think when we watch videos of artists, when we like those films of Picasso painting on glass, you know, because he's such an actor, you know, and he would just do those, you know, okay, it's almost done, you know, this Bob Ross moment, you know. And I think she was learning, teaching herself at that time and learning. And I was doing the same thing. I was training my eyes to recognize and, you know, and the smell and the sounds. Uh, of what was going on. So I think that really made our relationship a lot easier, too, because we like the same things, because that's comfort for me, and that was comfort for her, you know, at the same time. So when we go to see shows and uh, when we go to see art, we like a lot of the same stuff. And, you know, there's a ton of my art. I, I can't say that there's not any influence of her work in my work. You know, it's in there. And since I do, I work on her archive because I'm still sort of managing aspects of her career, I, I'll, I'll be flipping through something and I'm like, damn, I thought I thought of that, you know, or something, <laughs> you know. But uh, but it's also, that recognition is also good because then, then you like, you feel like, oh, well, I'm doing the right thing, you know, because it's, it's influenced me and it's come through and it's been reinterpreted. So... When I say artists steal, yeah, we steal, but it's not like a blatant, like, you know, you, you cut it out and you shove it in there. It, it's, it's an interpretation, because it, it comes through you, you know? And that's, that's where the real magic is, is when you recognize, when you're making a mark and you're like, oh my gosh, that's a Joan Mitchell. Whew, I'm doing something right, you know, that kind of thing. It's really glorious, you know, to be, to, to have those moments, you know, in, in, in creation. You know, I use a lot of rabbits and coyotes, he uses rabbits and coyotes. Tricksters. But when when I see his, they're very different from mine. He gets his from different places. I get mine from different places. So whenever I see a new print that he's made or a new painting, I'm always dazzled by it. So you know, I tell him, wow, wow, that's amazing. How did you do that? His prints are just phenomenal. I mean, you know, from the time when he was like working for a magazine downtown and doing their layouts, he wasn't like going anywhere and I was worried about it although he wanted to be Mick Jagger and he was working on his band and I was praying that he wasn't going to spend his life in smoky bars and leave his teenagers at home and stuff so I said to him hey I have this show in France how would you, how would you like to do a print for this show because I had this nice press in there and this new ink I was working with and he said sure so I thought oh yeah sure and so he came over every day after work and I showed him this new ink and how it worked and you know what, what he could do and I was doing mono printing and everything. He came over every day and he stayed there till midnight. And then he'd go home, get up, go to work, come back the next day uh, after supper 
and work on this print. He made this phenomenal print. And so I said, wow, well, if you did that, I'm going to be in this other portfolio. Would you like to be in this portfolio? So he said, sure. And he did the same thing again. That was the beginning of his printmaking. And then I said to him, honey, you know what? You, you should... You should think about going and getting your MFA. And you know what? I was talking to my friend, Lydia Madrid. She would help you with this. She's in the printmaking department. If you would like to get your MFA. Yeah, but and he said, what no. really sealed the deal is uh, I was, I, I was actually started teaching workshops. And, but I wasn't getting paid. <laughs> and I was like, well, this, this smacks, you know? And it's because I didn't have my MFA. So that that right. was that really sealed the deal yeah. for me. So I, yeah. I, I got to get that piece of paper right so, now. So then I told him about this this guy who I just lurched over. His name was Keith Howard. He used to go up to Peace River, Alberta, and do workshops in the summertime with new technology and how how badly I wanted to go there. And this went on for years. And Nick Simonoff would go with him. It's a good thing I didn't go up there because they were all men. They were all beer drinkers. It, it would have been a horrible place for me to be. It wouldn't have been fun at all, and I would have been sorry I spent my money. But I used to, like, think about that. He was coming to Santa Fe to do a workshop, and I said, Hey, if I pay for the workshop, would you go take this workshop with them? And he said, Yeah, uh, yeah, okay. So he went. They became dear friends. And Keith would come park his RV in Neil's yard, come in his house and cook. And Neil took this new technology that changed our lives. I mean, honest to God, uh, non-toxic. It was a whole big thing, which he took to the university, which he'd taken to his students at the Indian school, and which he brought here to to this school. I mean, all the this new technology is is from him taking those classes. You know, I know we're running out of time. Um, I, I have two more questions. The one, and, and you kind of brought this up, um, is you kind of have these reoccurring themes of, uh, you know, at USD, we're the University of South Dakota Coyotes, right? And I'm just wondering if you can, I, I'm not necessarily sure if maybe, you know, a lot of people know the the mythology surrounding this animal, um, you know, how important it is to Native American um, tribes, you know, and obviously it probably means different things to different different tribes. Exactly. That You're exactly right. You that statement is is right on. It means different things to different tribes, and there are lots of books of coyote stories. But for our tribe, coyote is part of our creation story. He helped a matkin, he, she, she, he, helped a matkin turn the lights on. Um, and so everything at home has that mountain. Coyote did something over there. And coyote is uh, our teacher. But coyote is also a buffoon, a jerk. Coyote is intelligent. Coyote is us. That's that's why we use him. She. He, she. Well, it's anthropomorphic, too. I, I like to use animals and maybe people, animal things here and there just as a figure to bring viewers in. I'm, more in, I'm not interested in shock value because um, I, I tend to stick a lot of things into my work, disseminating information, you know. Not so much about teaching, but like sharing something. You know, having figures is really good for storytelling as well. And so I, I tend to use them 
in that regard, but it's also a safe place for me. I think one of the cultural things that I think about and I know she thinks about is appropriation. And so we're trying to, we try to be careful of not stepping on other cultures' toes. And, and of course, we've seen that happen a lot lately. You know, it's a better way to go. It's, if, if you really want to make a statement and if you really have something that you really want to share and talk about, it's better to bring people in and to get them engaged rather than hit them in the face with with something because it may get you a lot of attention and it may sell more work uh, at some point or something but in the end it's just a complete shutdown and it just moves us it's divisive in that in that way you know kind of kind of like running a piece of steel down the sidewalk and blocking off the sidewalk you know He's talking about Richard Serra. It may be attractive or something. You know, these lights but it's look divisive. Like, these lights look like those solar lights that that uh, guy, what's his name? Eliason. Yeah. Olaf Eliason. He's making solar lights like this. We have one. He did it for Art Basel. Now he's teamed up with IKEA, and um, yeah. he, they're going to make these lights. But he's been dis- he's been disseminating these lights to third world people. It looks like a little uh, sunflower. Solar. Yeah, and the, the battery lasts amazing. eight hours and it's really these, bright. Yeah, that's what these look like. Mm-hmm. Sorry about that. <laughs> oh, no, <laughs> everything's connected to art history. It, um, it, yeah, everything has something to do with art. Well, and no, thank you. I, this has been a cool conversation, and I think we could probably talk to you guys for hours here. I, you know, the one question that we like to usually ask at the end of our podcast is a little bit reflective, and I'm curious just with the careers that you've had, the interesting lives I think that you have both led, um, what your perspective on this might be. And it's an Oprah question, so I can't even really take credit for it. So you know it's a good interview question, right? But but it's just a simple question. It's At this point in your life, what do you know for sure? I know for sure I'm going to pass. I know for sure that I'm going to be part of wood techs and swallows and grizzly and uh, ancestors dust. I know for sure. Not to interrupt, do you, as you kind of approach maybe the end of your career, is that something that you think about more and more? Sure. Sure I do. I mean, what you, what you pray for is to have good health and, you know, that you could go with your boots on, so to speak, but it doesn't always happen like that. So I pray that I, you know, that I'm not ill for a long time, not stressful for my family. I'd like to be on my reservation. I'd like to be at home. That would be important to me. I always tell my kids I'm just going to drive off a bridge (laughs) if I discover something. I I know for sure uh, change is inevitable. Mm -hmm. And that, that is the one thing that humans fear the most and um, that we see common everywhere. It's, it's pervasive. It's, it's like a, a disease or an illness, you know, this fear of change. But if we embrace change and follow through the door where that goes, you know, good things happen. They always happen, you know. The climate change is change. It's going to happen. It's happening. We, we need to work with it, you know, and flow through it. Uh, my work is going to change. I need to follow that. I don't want my work to stay stale, to stay the same, you know. I, I embrace change uh, all the time. So I know that's happening for sure. Neil, John, thank you so much um, for this conversation. Really appreciate it. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for listening to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. 
Listening is 100% of the grade, so we hope you enjoyed the episode. Next week, we interview USD law professor Frank Palmershein about his career and the evolution of teaching Indian law in South Dakota. Until next time, go Yotes.